0: Hey, dickheads! We have a special pink laser beam of truth for your brain hole today. We have two guests: Dr. Gavriel Rosenfeld, who is a professor at Fairfield University in Connecticut, but he's also a writer who studies Nazism, alternate history, and anti-Semitism. Also today, we have Bruce Kraevsky, who is co-editor of *Man in the High Castle* and philosophy. So you guessed it, this episode's about the man in the high castle. (laughs) But uh, anyways, this is an excellent discussion. These two gentlemen know their Philip K. Dick, and they know their man in the high castle and their history. So uh, please do enjoy, and uh, join us next for a discussion of the TV show, Man in the High Castle. Thanks, dickheads. All right, dickheads, we have two special guests here tonight to talk to us about Philip K. Dick's classic Man in the High Castle. They come at it with some expertise that we don't have, so we hope they can share their knowledge with us. Um, first, uh, straight out of Bloomington, Indiana, my hometown as well, and um, someone whose father goes to synagogue with my father <laughs> is Dr. Gabrielle Rosenfeld um gabby can you introduce yourself
1: yeah hi it's great to be here uh professor of history at fairfield university and happy to make the bloomington connection
0: yeah that's great um so also with us today is co-editor of man in the high castle and philosophy uh bruce and i'm sorry i already forgot how to pronounce your last (laughs) name bruce it's okay it's it's krajavsky uh anyone who listens to the podcast regularly knows I have I'm terrible with names. So uh let's start with um Gav. let's um first and foremost one of the things that is is foremost in uh man in the high castle is the fact that we have Nazi occupied America. How realistic is the idea that the Nazis could possibly um take over the east coast of the United States, Japan, the west coast?
1: Right. Well, it's uh to get right to the point, it's pretty unrealistic, but then that is a kind of way of throwing a wet blanket on the entire genre of a lot of alternate history. So I wouldn't want to make too much of that, but just for the sake of argument, one uh truism of history, of historical scholarship about the Second World War is that when the Nazis decided to fight against the coalition of the United States, British Empire and the Soviet Union, they bit off far more than they could chew just in terms of the disparity in economic resources between Germany on the one hand, a country of 80 million people, and the British Empire, Soviet Union, and the United States with more than 500 million people and massive economic strength and technological power. So, you know, Hitler did try and commission a fleet of long-range bombers to reach the U.S. East Coast from the Azores, Portuguese Islands, and that, um, you know, never got off the ground because the Nazis simply didn't have the resources to invest in that kind of uh, military operation. Um, you know, they sent submarines across the Atlantic, and some of them were lurking off the East Coast here and there, but they, they never had the wherewithal to invade England in Operation Sea Lion in 1940 uh, or 41, so the idea that they could have done anything uh, in America is pretty far-fetched.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that I've always thought might have made this a little less far-fetched is if... And I always think of uh, Sinclair Lewis's classic novel, uh, It Can't Happen Here, and the idea that maybe, perhaps, this could have been more realistic or Dick could have infused the idea of um, collaborators within our system and anti-Semitic uh, thoughts and feelings basically already festering in the United States and kind of already working with people here. Uh, was that something that the Nazis were actually trying to... to
1: to do at the time? Yeah, I mean, they certainly had the the German-American Bund on the East Coast. They had Nazi agents out in Los Angeles. In fact, there have been a couple books recently about Nazi agents in Hollywood and efforts of American Jews, in fact, connected with Hollywood to try and uncover them and suppress them. Um, And, of course, the FBI uh, was well aware of uh, cells of Nazis. um, And probably the Nazis' preference would have been to work with some kind of homegrown domestic uh political right wingers if that had been possible, but then it really does beg the question how they could have made contact across the Atlantic Ocean and, and fostered any kind of real insurgent activity. It's it's again all quite far-fetched.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Bruce, now your book is about the philosophy of Man the High Castle. For for me, one of the things that I think a lot of people miss the point of this novel on is that it's not so much of like, ooh, look how scary it could be if the Nazis took over. It's about the unreliability of history itself being in the sense of like, we have to trust the historians to tell us and history can be manipulated just like any facts. Um, can you tell us like, uh, you know, how, how did you approach, um, kind of looking at the entire philosophy of the novel and trying to find a whole different set of essays? that encapsulates the philosophy. Did you have a plan uh, when you started this book?
2: Well, we worked with the publisher to come up with a description to invite people to participate and it's mostly people trying to do what we call applied philosophy, meaning there might be somebody out there who has a favorite philosopher and then reads something or sees something and then um, takes that, that object or that artifact and uses it as a kind of catalyst for thinking about um, the themes or the topics involved based on the philosopher or the philosophical angle that that person is interested in. And that's kind of what happened with the collection. We we had some themes we threw out at people hoping that they would um, pick up on the things we were interested in. But, of course, things don't always turn out that way when you're an editor of a book. Um, People have their their own hobby horses they're trying to, to plug, such as I didn't expect that there was going to be such a strong libertarian trend among the essays in the book, um, but I found out later that open court, for some reason, attracts people who are libertarians to, to write for the, the series, the popular culture and philosophy series. That um, Our volume is number 111 of that series. Um, so there, there's, there's been a lot of work out there and a lot of libertarians are waiting for some some reason to, to write about um, <laughs> that philosophy. And Man in the High Castle apparently um, attracted quite a number of them, but um, my particular viewpoint was to try and bring up something that, I guess, rubs against some fans of Philip K. Dick, which is that they need to read beyond the novels into some of the works from um, what philosophers would call the knock loss, or people's unpublished writings, or their letters, or looking behind the scenes, um, such as this, this item that's in Pursuit of Alice, in which Dick talks about um, his audience, he perceives as a fascist mob because he's interested in promoting uh, fascist ideology, and he says this explicitly. Um, and I, kn- I didn't see that in any of the essays that were published <laughs> about Philip K. Dick by fans, so I thought it was an important thing to mention that Dick himself is a complicated figure in relationship to National Socialism.
0: Yeah, certainly. And with his first novel, Solar Lottery, a lot of people assumed that the book was far left and then when he wrote the world jones made he tried to go far to the other opposite spectrum but what he ended up doing and i don't know if either of you have read the world jones made but what's interesting is a huge plot point of that novel is that he's basically trying to express the idea and we joke about it that the point of man of the world jones made is hitler is bad um <laughs> right but he did it by having these um what kind of, there were these aliens that were this, um, basically analogy for how the Nazis viewed Jews. And it was kind of like, there's always this weird kind of problematic thing with the way Philip K. Dick uses some of these analogies. And I think going to the, in your, your book, I'm sure you tried to look for people to be able to comment on his entire history or all of his books. Am I correct in that or?
2: Um, because the book was based on the, the Amazon series that came out mm-hmm. we were hoping that people would um, deal strictly with that and not pay attention so much to the book because we could rely on other people to um, provide commentary on the novel mm-hmm. we're, we were interested in, in some juxtaposition of the novel with the TV series but we were hoping people would deal with the alternative history given in the TV series
0: okay, gotcha um, so get, uh, Gov, we, um, one of the things we noted when we were reading this depiction of the world that Philip K. Dick envisioned, um, in this novel was certain things like, um, uh, can a lot of Canada became a refuge for Jews, um, specifically kind of highlighted with a very humorous scene with Bob Hope, you know, doing his shows from Canada, but there was also talk of legalized slavery, um, and the idea that um, Africa had just basically been wiped off the map. I wonder um, how much... Um, has there been any um, anti-Semitism that has been... Or people who are into anti-Semitism, like white power groups who... Have kind of have um, attached or, or attached themselves to this novel, or come to like this novel. Have you seen anything of that kind of nature?
1: I mean, the 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 mis, the mis, the potential for misreading uh, definitely exists in the genre of alternate history, especially alternate histories of the Nazis winning World War II. So, some you know classic examples would be Robert Harris's Fatherland from 1992 uh was initially read by german neo-nazis after reunification as an endorsement of a nazi ruled world of course it was anything but um and then of course there are the famous examples of robert crumbs you know when the jews take over america when the blacks take over america and you know it's meant to be ironic portrayals of racism that people who don't get the joke uh have uh, misinterpreted you know the famous um novel um by um no no what i'm blanking on the iron dream by norman spinrad you're right also um very famously was misinterpreted but no i've never seen any um uh references to uh right-wingers or anti-semites endorsing the man in the high castle i mean from my perspective it's much more moralistically clear-cut in terms of who the heroes and villains are even if they're not black and white and even though you do have some pretty nasty american characters like robert childan which who definitely illustrate the potential within American society for Nazi collaboration, fascism, and so forth. Um, I don't think uh, you know that's probably as easy to mistake within the narrative.
0: Yeah. So as a historian, when you when you and especially somebody who has looked at the idea of a, of of how Hitler might have ruled, how did, how did you feel Dick handled um, the world building in this novel?
1: I mean, it's interesting, especially in light of the three seasons of the Amazon series. Um what I always was surprised by in reading Manhattan Castle was how little Dick actually devoted how much how little attention he gave to the Nazis. Um most of the novel, of course, takes place on the West Coast in the Japanese occupation zone, specifically in San Francisco. And it's much more about the interaction between Americans and Japanese as opposed to Americans and Nazis. And I don't know if Dick potentially um Felt that he, I, I would, I would, I would hardly say he never felt his imaginative capacity was up to the task. Although the Nazi period in the Holocaust have always challenged writers to, you know, imagine the unimaginable and do justice to it. Um, but it, I thought it was uh, interesting that most of the, um, tra- the atrocities committed by the Nazis take place offstage, so to speak. Uh, and while there's certainly references to the horrors taking place in Africa, and while most of American Jewry have has been destroyed. And while Frank Frank ends up being potentially deported until he gets rescued by Tagomi later in the novel, and so clearly there's there are threats to the few Jewish characters there are. Um, really, it's pretty subtle, um, and that's not to take anything away from Tolpidik's uh, anti-fascist bona fides from the late 50s and early 60s. And we can talk more about the exact, at least what I argue in my book, was the exact um, set of historical influences or stimuli for him taking this anti-Nazi approach, but. Uh, the book did not appear in 1962 for no reason. There's a lot going on in the years leading up to that publication date that were, were, was definitely influential.
0: Hmm. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to that. Um, I do know from our research, um, and we talked about this in our uh, last episode, that, um, or in our Man in the High Castle episode, is that there is there are letters that Philip K. Dick had written to different editors and translators that talk about his writing process. And in one of the letters, he does mention that he didn't ever finish his sequel that he had the idea for, partially because he did not like writing about the Nazis. He did not like spending time in their headspace. And so he was very clear in some of his letters that that was something that he didn't enjoy. At the same time, um, he's well, he seemed to glorify the, the Japanese um, in a sense. And we do have a letter that he sent to the Japanese translator where he actually straight up said to him, can you tell how much I like Japanese culture? Um, And which, as a historian, you you, you must, and I know this, like the Japanese had a brutal occupation of China. And I think that one of the things that's totally incorrect about this book is I think he soft-pedals the Japanese occupation of the West Coast. And I don't know.
1: I mean, certainly, I think that's true. I mean Togomi is a very redemptive figure. Uh, I guess one thing that might be worth highlighting is the fact that if you look at when Man in the High Castle came out in '62, it was against the backdrop of two other really well-known alternate history tales of the Nazis winning World War II. Um, the first was William Shire's, if Hitler had won World War II, which appeared in Look magazine one year earlier in 1961, and which, which Phil Kiddick actually points out was a big influence on his own novel, and then a couple of years before that, Cyril Kornbluth, the famous sci-fi writer, published a short story called Two Dooms, which also um, very much points out how horrific the world would have been if the Nazis had won World War II, and in all three cases, of course, the Japanese come off looking much better than the Nazis, but what I think is interesting is when you look at the biographical backgrounds of the three writers, uh, Cyril Kornbluth was a Jewish American writer who served at the Battle of the Bulge, fighting against the Nazis, obviously there was no love lost there. William Shire had been CBS uh, radio journalist in Berlin until he got kicked out by the Nazi regime. He was a fierce anti-Nazi. Um, Dick was born, I looked up before the interview tonight, uh, born in 1928. So in 1945, he was only 17. He was too young to fight in the war. My guess would have been, as counterfactually, if he had been 10 years older and served in the Pacific, he would have probably lambasted the Japanese in his post-war <laughs> fiction Um, but, or if he fought fought in Germany, probably the opposite, but you know, he was too young. So either way, potentially Mm. growing up in California and having the Pacific Rim orientation, I wouldn't imagine that this was uninvolved in his perspective.
0: Bruce, do you have any, um, uh, essays about, um, how, uh, I, I haven't, I unfortunately have not gotten my copy yet of Man in the High Castle of Philosophy uh but do you talk about his uh, uh do you have any essays about um PKD's um uh fascination with the japanese in in the book in in the tv show
2: there, there is one essay by a man who is a specialist in um japanese philosophy who talks about the connection with the i ching mm-hmm. um particularly with this notion that you know all things that happen are somehow connected and all you need to do is be able to find the causal link and um, follow the chain and, you know, everything will become reasonable and ex- explained. Um, and so he, I think he does a good job of um, talking about, you know, Takami's relationship with the I Ching and the Amazon Prime series does a lot with you know, the business of him like throwing the sticks and uh, predicting the future and talking about the relationship of um, prophecy to history, which I think um, is something that needs more attention to by people who study the book as a piece of literature um, and to think more about the fact that prophecies aren't simply uh, fictional statements that have no relevance. Um, it's like Macbeth. Um, when you say something that might happen, you have in a sense set something in motion already. Um, you've, you've presented a possibility um, that can then become real. And so even if we follow somebody like Aristotle who talks about all you know, all kinds of logical causalities. Um, he also talks about things like um, divination and uh, the potential causal chains to something like you know, I'm, I'm introducing something that's non ancient Greek, but reading tea leaves, for instance, um, or anybody who goes to visit a palm reader, or you know, you have your tarot cards read, um, and somebody says, you know, the death card has appeared, that's going to have some sort of impact on the person who's hearing that, regardless of the fictional nature of that interpretation. Um, So I think some of the people in the book um, address those um, portions of Japanese culture that uh, come up in the novel and um, did some fascinating things with them.
0: So Bruce, um, and this will segue into something that I want to talk to uh, Gav about too, but Um, in your in your essay in the book is called "Uh, when fascists become heroes," and one of the things that is a really interesting aspect of the occupation in *Man in the High Castle* is the situation that some of these characters who, you know, are fascists, they're Nazis, they're part of the Japanese occupation, actually become redeeming characters. Can you talk about? Uh, your essay and what you were trying to express about that aspect of the man in the high castle?
2: Um, I I wasn't trying to redeem anybody in my essay, but let me start with another (laughs) contributor who talks about um, the Amazon Prime series. And um, there's a a moment in the series when um, someone's about to assassinate Hitler, and you're looking at the assassination from behind the sniper who's about to shoot Hitler, and the contributor mentions that you know, and I, I don't think there's any empirical evidence to back up this claim, so we just have to go with it. But um, the contributor claims that the audience feels as if the person shouldn't pull the trigger, that suddenly we have this sympathy for Hitler, and we, be, we don't want him to die at that point in the Amazon Prime series. Right. Um, so this kind of shift that happens with condemnation of Nazism versus the portrayal of Nazis um, and how the audience might interact with um plot elements that are either faithful to the book or changed in the Amazon Prime series. Um, I think that's worth exploring and talking about and why some people prefer to read Dick as an anti-fascist when he makes these statements that are very explicit about he's an admirer of Mussolini and he admires Hitler and he claims to um, foment a fascist ideology in his books and is happy that he's able to deceive people Uses one example that's I think very telling um, with Stanislaw Lem, who's I think one of the other most famous science fiction writers of the 20th century. I mean, talks about how Marxists from Russia had written to Philip K. Dick to tell him how they admired the fact that um, he had somehow, you know, helped helped Marxism through his works, and Dick's response to that in, in responding to. Um, a letter is to tell someone that this was all done behind the scenes that he was really interested in promoting Christianity and a particularly agnostic version of Christianity in his writings and he had deceived these Marxists and was kind of laughing at them behind his back um, so I, I, again I think it's, it's very difficult to do a kind of literal reading of either the novel or the tv series um, because of this background information and the things that are kind of left out of the picture such as why don't we have an alternative history of what would have happened if the russians had taken over there's just one section in chapter seven of the novel that talks about how communism would have been worse than um, the national Socialists taking over which is hard to believe um, it's not hard to believe given stalin but it's hard to believe given communist philosophy and issues of egalitarianism and you know, the sharing of property and that sort of thing, that, that life would have been worse under the communists.
0: Right. And so in one aspect of the of um, uh, of. Sorry. Uh, so what uh, what was going on with in this novel is uh, Adolf Hitler is old and he's dying and we have the control of the Reich. It goes between several different figures and between Martin Bormann has become the chancellor of Germany in this, this novel and um, Goebbels uh, is kind of fighting for control. We have Heydrich who ran the SS. These are all real life people. And I'm wondering Gov, if if you mm-hmm. could tell me what do you think about his PKD's depiction of these real life figures? Because he claims even though the novel, the idea for the novel came to him, as he was writing, that he had been thinking about writing a novel about the Nazis for seven years and researched um, Nazism for seven years. How do you think he portrayed these real-life figures?
1: Um, Again, they're sort of schematically drawn. They're not really well-developed characters. It, It almost makes me wonder if he could have easily substituted Goebbels for Heydrich and Heydrich for Goebbels, because in a way it sort of doesn't even matter. Um, given the fact that most readers have no idea what the difference is between either of the two figures. I mean, the fact of the matter is is there definitely would have been a power struggle in Nazi Germany following the death of Hitler, um, had he really reached the age of, well, in 1962, he would have been born in 89. So, you know, we're talking about uh, his mid-70s at that point in time. Uh, You know, in the novel, it's Operation Dandelion, which is this preemptive nuclear strike by Germany against Japan that Goebbels is promoting – Meanwhile, Heydrich's wing seems to be wanting to uh, undermine that and work towards, you know, I guess the pr- preserve the preservation of a cold peace between the two powers. Um, you know, I, I think it's more accurate in explaining what the Nazis have done between winning the Second World War and the present of the present time period of the novel. That's where. I think he is. Um, he obviously lets his imagination run wild in the sense that the Nazis have colonized Mars and they've drained the Mediterranean Sea. Right. Uh, these kinds of very megalomaniacal things. But I think that demonic um, radical is radical potential that the Nazis had already uh, applied to Eastern Europe. He very logically extends to many other parts of the world. Um, so in that respect, I think it's it's the the, the gist is accurate. Um, whether or not Heydrich would have been. Uh, the person trying to prevent a nuclear strike against Japan, I personally don't buy that. Um, you know, Himmler and Heydrich were certainly the most ideologically fanatical um, within the Nazi movement. Goebbels was just sort of a PR man, uh, and Goering uh, and other members who represented the military would have been probably more on the conservative, moderate side. Um, but I think for the purpose of the novel it definitely um, develops the proper sense of dread uh, from the perspective of the reader. And there's one line that always sticks with me is near the end of the novel where one, I think it may be Baines or Tagome, I think it was Baines said, you know, whatever happens, it's evil beyond compare. So no matter which faction wins out in this power struggle, the world is still doomed, basically.
0: Mm, Yeah. So one of the ideas that the novel puts forward that I think a lot of people miss is that The, the world in the uh, Grasshopper Lies Heavy, the fictional book inside the Man in the High Castle, is not our world. Um, it is a third, uh, history where, and, and so they put forward this idea that Roosevelt would, um, the assassination of Roosevelt being successful in 1934 would. 32. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, that this uh, attempt on Roosevelt's life is successful. That's one of the things that leads to, um, the military not being built up in the United States. And that's one of the reasons why this, um, this could happen. But the grasshopper lies heavy is not, not a correct history of our world either. So I, what I've always taken that to be is the unreliability of how history is being taught and what is reality. And to me, this is the greater theme of the philosophy of Philip K. Dick in action, in the sense of there is no reality here that is absolutely 100% correct. Um, Bruce, I'm wondering um, how much you see uh, *Man in the High Castle* fitting into the greater philosophy of Philip K. Dick.
2: Yeah, and that, again, this this passage that I I keep pointing to in, in pursuit of balance, um, where he talks about you know his praise for Hitler and Mussolini. Um, includes a passage in which he talks about he's adopted basically this the stance of Mussolini and the National Socialists, which is an adherence to you know, gross relativism, kind of the problems we're having today with alternative facts and um, people changing their stories every other week about what's really happening in Washington, D.C. Um, Dick is part of that because he's claiming that he doesn't believe in the truth either. Um, and I, I have the book open. He. He says, "My fascistic premise is there is not truth; we make truth." Mm-hmm. Um, what so year is that? that that's kind
1: from of that I was curious. What year is that quotation from? That's from *In
2: Pursuit of Valis*, and I'm sorry, I don't have the the date of.
1: But it's a, from, That's from the 70s, I'm assuming.
2: I think it's from. And, and then there's a larger collection called *The Exegesis*. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's I believe it, this is also part of that as well.
0: Yeah, it was written in the late 70s. The, yeah, the yeah. I mean,
1: I'm just curious. It's that run, that really runs counter to everything I've ever read about Dick. So I, I really am interested to read your book and see that essay and those references. I, I you know, I don't know from, from deep reading, you know, what his mindset was. I know there was a lot of. Uh, Gnosticism, and there's a lot of drug use, and there's a lot of psychedelic trippy <laughs> stuff going on in the 70s with well, PKD. Well, Gov, well, welcome to PKD because tell, let me tell you, <laughs> as somebody who does um,
0: an entire podcast and has read all the letters, he contradicts himself constantly. And that's one of the things that I know um, there's a historian, uh, Evan Lampe, who we've had on our podcast, who breaks down all of PKD's books and and it was funny because when we interviewed Evan, the first, one of the first things he said was, "Oh, I don't trust PKDU when he talks about himself." Um, right,
1: <laughs> especially, if, especially if in the 1970s. Or, or I put it this way: I, I'm really intrigued by this, but what I would almost wonder is if, if by the 1970s, he's almost just maliciously or provocatively saying things like that, which in the late 50s, or early 60s, he never would have said, because you know, it's it's, it's maybe a gap of 15 years. And I'm just, I, as a historian, I'd be curious to know. Mm-hmm. Um, whether his, his self-portrayal is changing over time, whether he's just getting a little loopy or, you know, I'm being glib here, but, uh, certainly contradicts what he, what he seems to have said about the evils of fascism in the late fifties. And clearly he was an anti, McCarthyite. Uh, McCarthy, uh, McCarthyite. he really thought that anti-communism in the fifties was a terrible trend in American life. Uh, but then I know he may have collaborated with the FBI, and so you know we have these mm-hmm. I mean, I, again this, the contradictions in his lifestyle, behavior, and and self portrayal. I think that they're fascinating. Well,
0: and we've also seen too that he uh, the um, the man who japed his novel, the man who japed, uh, basically um, is is very much a political novel that kind of looks at the way Ch- he basically kind of promotes this Chinese idea of of neighbors self-censoring each other or with these neighborhood collectives that uh, police each other. And mm-hmm. what's funny is that if you look at – you can look at certain points that he makes in World Jones Made and then say – and definitely see the contradictions when you get to, for example, Man in the High Castle. But we see that all the time as people who are breaking down all of his books and in one way, that's what makes him a very interesting
1: person to do a podcast about. But well, one thing I thought. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Gal. I was just going to say, when you mentioned a couple minutes ago, the question of the grasshopper lies heavy has uh, an internal sort of nesting doll narrative that is not exactly our real history. Um, and that's true, because if you go back and look at the quotes that um is reading to Joe Sinadella if I'm not mistaken, she's basically reading the fact that the United States does get involved in World War II, um, and the Nazis do, in fact, lose the war. So in that sense, there is a similarity, but it's actually Great Britain that plays the leading role in defeating the Nazis. And in fact, it seems like there's a Cold War between the U.S. and the U.K. in this third potential world, one in which the British Empire survives. And one could, I suppose, read this as, you know, again, if we want to consider Dick to be on the left politically at this point in time. You know, it could be an indictment of the persistence of imperialism and the fascist potential um, that exists in the world that he was clearly also worried about in terms of race relations in America and so forth. Um, So there are similarities between um, the internal novel and our real history. Uh, but there are some, uh, as you say, some really important differences too that I would imagine has, has, have a political subtext.
0: Yeah, he even mentions the British having concentration camps in China, which was um, something that, uh, this is my third time reading Man in the High Castle, and I, when I read that line, I couldn't believe that I never noticed it <laughs> the other two times. But
1: Yeah, uh, it's, it's a pessimistic uh, conclusion. Even though the Nazis lose the war, it doesn't mean that fascism's been banished. So in that sense, it's kind of, a novel that asks us to remain vigilant about the you know all pervasive uh, potential for fascism because it's at the end of the day he hates you know he hates germany for what it did but he doesn't think that fascism is a strictly or uniquely german phenomenon i think he universalizes it in that respect
0: yeah uh bruce in your book you there i know there are, you t- you mentioned the libertarians that were drawn to this book and i think that mostly they were am, we, am i wrong in saying that they kind of Got uh, attached to the idea of the neutral zone uh, area of um, the United States in this in this alternate timeline. Oh, in- indeed, yeah, and partially because
2: of the you know the emphasis that Gav has mentioned on um, you know, Dick's distrust of the government in general and government entities in general. Um, so libertarians want to push home the point that you know small government is better and um, people's rights need to be. Um, pushed harder at every possible turn. And so they see Juliana, you know, in her transgressions, you know, she she just leaves, and she has this um, idea that the alternative history that's in the Grasshopper book um, is going to inspire others besides her for some sort of change in the world. Um, and so the libertarian contributors to the book latch onto that, and I think there's empirical evidence to support that view. Um, it's just that, again, as, as I say, we all have our own hobby horses, and we can look for what we, we want to find, and it will be there.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, Gov, you've just recently um, been working on a book about modern anti-Semitism, I, I believe. I, um, and I'm wondering just um, what this novel was written in 1962. It was a very different time. We've come a long way from that. And now we have this TV show, and I'm wondering, with with the rise of anti-Semitism again in this country where we've seen hate crimes, and uh, certainly in Pittsburgh, um, your father and mine go to a synagogue that just recently had a lecture on how to deal with anti-Semitism and security at their own synagogue, which was horrifying for me to hear from my father about. But you know, this is a reality that we have. So what does the man in the high castle, um, the novel or, and the TV show say for this day and age, uh, considering when it was originally written and, and how it's being developed now.
1: Right. Well, uh, before I get to that point, you, I don't know if you recall back in, I believe it was 1983, our synagogue in Bloomington was actually firebombed by white Aryan resistance types who ended up later being caught, uh, and, uh, arrested by the FBI and put on trial and sent to prison. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid growing up in high school, the fact that I came back from Jewish summer camp one summer and my dad told me that, yeah, the synagogue was, you know, the victim of an arson attack, that to me made it clear that antisemitism was not something that was just in the abstract or something that happened in Germany in World War II, but it was, you know, something that could actually happen in Indiana. For that matter, um, it's probably worth remembering that when Dick wrote Man in the High Castle, uh, the United States had just experienced a pretty massive wave of anti-Semitic vandalism. Because on Christmas Day, 1959, and to the next five, six months in Germany and across the United States, there were literally over a thousand instances of swastika daubings and attacks against uh, synagogues, um, with, uh, several bombings actually taking place in Alabama, um, with also some shots being fired, um, by some kids into a synagogue. So even, you know, Dwight Eisenhower had to speak out against a comrade Odenauer in Germany had to speak out against it. And the, The idea that, remember at this time, the Eichmann trial in 1960, 61 had just taken place, of the major war criminal who had been kidnapped by the Mossad in Argentina, the Berlin crisis and the Berlin Walls going up in 61. So, you know, 1959, 60, 61, there's a lot of attention all of a sudden, again, being paid towards Nazism. Not just Nazism in the years 33 to 45, but the legacy of Nazism and the survival of Nazi ideas and anti-Semitism in in the post-war world. So in that sense, I've always viewed this novel as kind of an echoing of the call to arms, the call to action, the desire to not forget the past. Because remember, for the, throughout the 1950s, people had very happily put the Nazi past, under, swept it under the rug for the sake of focusing Western uh, attention on the nuclear threat posed by the Soviet Union, and Germany was our ally. Uh, so, you know, that's the immediate context for Philip K. Dick. I think um, you know, for the novel now, of course— with the remarkable timing um, of the series, which started in 2015 and is going strong and will have its uh, fourth season, I guess, next year, 2019, you know, the political backdrop is is really quite stunning because the first season aired against an Obama administration that was viewed by right-wing Tea Party types as fascist. Uh, now, of course, in the Trump era, we have people on the left um, and on the center viewing uh, you know, the president administration as certainly uh, fascist, if not, uh, you know, white supremacist. And, you know, there are there's certainly a hyperbole in, uh, that in, is involved in all these kinds of comparisons. Mm-hmm. And I'll stay off the political, you know, uh, pedestal for a second in terms of gauging which is more realistic and which is not. But um, I think the series has undeniably benefited um, from the political context, which, by the way, also explains why The Plot Against America has now been signed up by HBO for dramatization, while, why Jordan Peele's The Hunt really? about searching for Nazis in the 1970s has been uh, drawn up, and SSGB on BBC2. I mean, it's it's really a, a golden age, unfortunately, for, for these kinds of dramas.
0: Hmm. Um, Bruce, for, from your perspective, as somebody who's uh, interested in the philosophy, how, how do you think um, The Man in the High Castle... <laughs> it's okay, we can edit uh, around stuff. Uh, Bruce, how do you feel um, the philosophy of The Man in the High Castle has aged since
2: 1962? Uh, can you say a little bit more about what you mean
0: by how, how it has aged? Well, just how do you think the, the philosophical ideas of The Man in the High Castle, um, how, how do you think that they are impacting readers and viewers now differently.
2: Um, I, I wish I, I wish I had the answer to that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> other than the responses I've received from um, this book and our contributors, um, it seems as if just as the country is divided um, and doesn't have much toleration for um, people who disagree with one viewpoint or the other or the third viewpoint, um, likewise, it seems as if there are fans of Philip K. Dick and his work, and they're going to remain fans regardless of any empirical evidence that's presented to them. Um, likewise, with the Amazon series, some people are, have no interest in the book and they're attached to the Amazon series and they love that, um, and they don't want to hear anything about Philip K. Dick's, you know, drug overdoses or um, you know whether he was interested in anti-McCarthyism, um, you know whether he called his mother on a regular basis. They're not interested in any of those things. Um, they're enjoying the works and living out the life of a person who enjoys literature. Um, and I think what, what Gav is doing and what a number of people are doing and what you're doing with your podcast is a great service to people because you're broadening the picture of what's going on with these novels. It's not simply that we should look at them as pieces of literature and pieces of entertainment, but they're They're part of some history. They're part of some moment in time. And to sit back and ask some questions about what's going on with why this kind of literature at this particular moment, that's a kind of reflection that I think will be helpful for what's going on in the present as we deal with issues of relativism and national socialism and white supremacy, um, why we still have this problem with communism, um, why people call other people communists when they, in the next breath, will say that you know, capitalism is the best possible thing and communism will never take over. Why are they so worried about it? eh? Um, So again, these, these, I think there's, as I try and mention in my essay in the book, there are these structuring absences that are in Dick that also need to be addressed, not just, you know, talk about what's there, but what isn't there. What alternative histories hasn't he presented that were actually potentials at the time? Um, And as I say, the, the Russian picture is one of those. And... Um, I'm just, uh, I guess I'm just getting excited because I think you've done a really great thing by um, having historians on and um, talking about people who have interests um, other than simply, say, a literal reading of the novels or a literal interpretation of the novels.
0: Well, yeah, I'm kind of a history nerd, uh, too. So I I was really excited uh, to do this discussion, but, um, and you're right, because some of the things that are not on the page are, are huge glaring problems there, especially Russia hardly ever gets mentioned. It's like that, that doesn't even exist (laughs) in the book. Um, Dick claimed that he thought out all the aspects of the world building that weren't there. We found a letter where he actually mentioned, Oh yeah, I thought it all out. You know, the Nazis would have had to make this deal with Spain to get across Gibraltar and all this other stuff. And, so he, he did claim that he did seven years of research leading up to this. But again, it's Philip K. Dick. So in one sense, he says he spent seven years researching it. And then we found another letter where he said, I had no notes at all. I just went in and started writing it. So it's, it's hard, it, it's hard to tell. I mean, one of the letters, he basically said he, he just wrote Man in the High Castle to get out of making and cleaning jewelry that his wife was selling. Um, mm-hmm. which is why the jewelry is a part of, of the novel. But, um, all right, so we can start to wrap some things up, but I want to talk about, um, get away from Man in the High Castle a little bit to talk about the work that you each do. Gov, can we start with you? You are really, I know, um, you do a lot of research into the history of Nazism and anti-Semitism. Was that, um, that incident at our synagogue in Bloomington, was that really what kicked you off into, into these studies?
1: Um, well, as you may or may not remember, so my dad's, uh, was, was a long time, uh, director of the Jewish studies program at Indiana University. Right. And he's actually right. celebrating his 50th year of teaching this coming spring. So he got that milestone. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, he's a, he, his main field is Holocaust literature, Holocaust fiction. And so I grew up in a house with, you know, all the bookshelves being full of, uh, titles about Nazism, the Third Reich, the Holocaust. Uh, it wasn't so much the synagogue episode as, I think, the, Year, the, whole years leading up to that. <laughs> the whole childhood, <laughs> the whole, essentially the whole childhood in Bloomington with Hitler, you know, lurking in the background. In fact, I, you know, it was funny. It's a little bit of a personal anecdote. But I back when I was at UCLA in the 90s, one of my old babysitters, who I guess was one of my dad's grad students, met me for lunch. And she said, oh, yeah, one of the first memories I have of you was when you were three or four and you pointed at the bookcase. Every single book on the shelf had the word Hitler. in and, and I said, bad man. To, to my babysitter center. So I, don't, I may talk in terms of like deterministic theories of why people go into certain fields. I, I may not have had much of a, ch- a choice to do anything else. um so But, I, but I, yeah, no, I've been working a lot on the history of Nazi Germany, the history of counterfactual history, the way in which the Nazi past has been mediated through different forms of culture, whether it's film or graphic novels or. Uh, you know, literature in different ways. Um, but maybe if I'll I'll give you just one plug, I have a book coming out in February, uh, entitled The Fourth Reich, The Spectre of Nazism Since, uh, the Second World War. And it basically is, uh, is a a history of the concept of a Fourth Reich, namely a Nazi return to power, starting in the 1930s when it was first envisioned, um, by, ironically enough, anti Nazi, um, left wing liberals and people on the socialist left who thought, a fourth Reich would be a post war, post Nazi democratic Germany until it got appropriated by neo Nazis in the 40s and 50s. And of course, ever since, it's been used to attack everything from Richard Nixon and the Vietnam War to Donald Trump to Vladimir Putin, Angela Merkel. It's, it's sort of a cultural and um, popular history of the, of the concept of a, of a fourth Reich. So you can keep your eye out for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm just wondering, uh, has your father uh, read any of these alternate history novels, and does he have an opinion on these, or have you
1: ever discussed them with him? <laughs> well, I, I still send him the rough drafts of my of my of my books and articles, so he certainly knows, knows a lot about it through, through what I've the colleagues I have in academia were initially a little bit uh skeptical that this was a genre worth devoting any serious academic attention to, but I'm I'm grateful that <laughs> right. the, more, the more it becomes a mainstream phenomenon thanks to you know Hulu and Stephen King and and uh, you know the plot against America, and Michael Shabon's Yiddish Policeman's Union. It's it's really a golden age for alternate history now. So um if I can be one of the people that helps make it academically respectable then then sure why not?
0: Sure. And do you um have any other experience with uh, the work of PKD, or is it mostly just reading *The High Castle*? No,
1: I was—I was looking. Was, I read eight of his novels. I tended to favor the ones that came out in the fifties and the early sixties. I read some of the ones, so I was just, you know, looking at *Eye in the Sky* or *Counterclock World* or mm-hmm. uh, *Time Out of Joint*. I, I sort of like to stick in that familiar uh, realm of like detective fiction, genre fiction, mm-hmm. and. I think his trippy stuff from the seventies and whatnot. I I haven't yet, you know, the of tril- the ballast tril- trilogy I haven't done, but I like you a bit quite a bit. So I don't know. Um, I definitely have enjoyed reading all this stuff and I haven't, I haven't uh, checked out the electric dreams, uh, but at the 10 part series at Amazon, is that on Amazon? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah it's,
0: on, yeah. it's on Amazon. Well, yeah. yeah and that's I love
1: what I should look out for in terms of which of those 10 are, are worth prioritizing. <laughs>
0: uh, we liked impossible planet. Um, uh, but uh, Um, but yeah I mean it's cool because I think you hit on a couple of our Eye in the Sky is one of my favorites we really like Time Out of Joint I think those are really good ones to read Um, but uh, um, so Bruce I wonder um, if you could uh, let let us know what you're working on and uh, um, what kinds of stuff uh, can we look forward to
2: Um, besides the um continuing response to people who pick up the um the anthology of essays about the Amazon series and um it's interesting to read some of those responses because people go to the trouble of sending letters to the publisher correcting um factual mistakes. Somebody saw or named the character in an, an essay um and this the spelling was wrong in the book or um, the depiction of the episode that's described is somehow off and the person feels very attached to this thing and wants, wants the, the authors to know about it. So the publisher forwards those to me and I try and respond to people so they don't feel as if they've written into the void. So I don't, I don't know how long that'll go on, but I'm happy to, you know, have any readers for the book. So I'm, I'm glad to um, respond to those kinds of things. And the, I guess the, the most, relevant thing that I'll be doing in the near future is um, doing a piece for the Cleveland Review of Books that's going to be a, um, a essay length consideration of a novel that's going to come out in February. Hopefully, I don't think it has going to be any competition for Gav's book. Um, it's, a, it's a novel called um, Trump Alpha Sky, um, and it's, uh, it's a fascinating account of um, Trump up in this kind of German Zeppelin. Um, ruling over the land and um, mm. make some mistakes that cause some huge problems for the world. <laughs> um,
1: that sounds brilliant. It's, yeah.
2: it's it's a really good novel it's by an author who's he's a he's teaching at Princeton now, and um, the, the stuff about um, Trump is is probably the best part of the, the novel and one of the things i'm going to try and steer people to in the review is to get away from what this historian tim mason talks about is kind of the, the individualistic view of fascism which is people focus in on um, hitler is like if only hitler had been killed or, um, or if stauffenberg had succeeded in assassinating hitler things wouldn't have been as bad and mason's point is Again, like your podcast, you need to see things in a broader picture. Hitler wasn't alone in gaining power for National Socialism. He needed a lot of helpers and there needed to be a lot of circumstances in place um, for him to, to rise to power and along with his party. Um, likewise with Trump, um, the elimination of Trump, um, which some people on the left dream of each night, um, will not end what's happening in the U.S. right now. Um, sad as that might be. Um, so I, I think that's that's going to be an important part of thinking about this novel is um, don't get focused in Trump, Trump Sky Alpha. Don't get focused in on the Trump part of things. There's a whole sky to worry about.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I also want to say, Gov, uh, I think it's uh, cool that as a fan of Norman Spinrad, I um, really like that uh, you hit on the Iron Dream. I think that's an um, overlooked part of this alternate history thing it's a very interesting book um and i'm just a fan of norman spinrad in general so um i i'm really looking forward to reading your book and your take on the iron dream um and so just to 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 wrap things up um uh i want to thank both of you for uh joining us tonight is there any last anything you guys want to plug before we go
1: um, I actually have a blog called the Counterfactual History Review. If anyone really wants to join the three people who are following me in Finland, Australia, and God knows where <laughs> else, uh, that, that's something I've been working on for, I don't know, four or five years now. So, um, if there, if there are interesting tidbits of pop culture going on that pertain to alternate history, uh, you can check it out on the Counterfactual History Review.
2: Oh, excellent. Bruce? Um, well. I have a little blog that's read by, you know, my relatives and maybe two other people. But what I'd like to do is plug this podcast because, as I say, I'm, I'm just, it's such a pleasure that to be on here and, um, you know, listen to Gov and, um, hear all of these details and these, these larger themes and pictures that emerge from, um, people getting together and thinking about the man in the high castle. I think you're, you're doing a great service for PK Dick fans. Um, And I'm certainly, I feel edified by having been on your podcast, and I'm I'm grateful to both of you.
1: Yeah, let me echo that. First, I'm going to go right to Amazon and get Bruce's book, because I had made a note to do that earlier. And then second of all, I really, uh, when I was scrolling through your guys' synopses and discussions of all the novels, um, the ones that I've read already, I'm going to go right and spend the next couple hours listening to those, just for uh, personal edification as well. Okay, well...
0: Just know that, uh, we try to, um, keep it funny too. (laughs) And, uh, but, uh, yeah, definitely check out Evan Lampy's, uh, podcast. He is, um, he's a historian who is a big PKD fan. We did an interview with him talking about, uh, the first five novels. And, um, he's a really brilliant, fascinating guy too. Um, and, uh, but one thing you're learning, Bruce, is us dickheads. We are um, a persnickety bunch, so as you're getting all those <laughs> letters, you'll see we love to to uh, talk about uh, PKD. So uh, keep us in mind in the future as well. Um, but uh, thank you for coming on the Dickheads podcast. And uh,
2: thank you.